Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 12 through the end of the verse, if you would follow along. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Neboeth, the first of, born of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Misam, Misham, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tuma, Jator, Napish, Kedima. These are the names, these are the sons of Israel, Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian of Padan the sister of Laman, the Armenian, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she says, If this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, what a beautiful day you've given us, uh, another day to gather as your people, your family, here in this uh, local assembly, and we just thank you for the privilege it is to come together with our brothers and sisters and to magnify your name. We pray that, Lord, all that we do and say and sing and give will be pleasing in your sight. And, Lord, we pray as much as we're grateful for the privilege, the opportunity we have to be in this location, this community, We pray for your wisdom and your discernment and your empowerment uh, to make us, Lord, that city on a hill in this community 
We recognize, Lord, that even though we live in a land of affluence, that uh, this in no way is indicative of the spiritual state within man, but that we live in a darkened and broken world, no matter what the outward circumstances may look like. Lord, raise up this church and use it to proclaim your gospel faithfully and effectively here in this community. We pray that your kingdom would advance in the hearts of the people here in this community. And we pray that, Lord, you would continue to conform this body to the image of Christ for your glory and for your honor. Now, Lord, guide us in this time together as a human vessel. Lord, I have nothing to say that is of any value to uh, any heart or mind here today, but only you. You have uh, placed me here as a vessel that's merely a spokesman through which you can speak into the hearts of your people. So I pray that in these moments we would hear your voice, we would hear and receive your spirit working in our hearts and lives, individually and corporately, again, for your glory and for our continued edification. And we make this prayer today in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we talked about the church's mission in our post-Christian society. And we discussed how the mission never changes. No matter what the outward environment may look like, we still have one mission, and that is to proclaim the gospel faithfully, to live out the gospel for Christ's glory. With that said, these are confusing times, confusing days, particularly for uh, the church and its people. Our landscape is filled with a plethora of uh, church buildings, a large mega church, the churches, the church types that appear to be thriving uh, upon first glance. And then there are many churches that uh, look or appear to be shrinking and seem to be struggling, even lifeless or dead. And so cynicism fills our minds as we uh, survey the landscape of our current culture and land. We criticize the mega churches for pragmatism and shallow teaching and preaching, and we criticize the shrinking churches for rigidity and uh, coldness. But this leads ultimately to many believers being discouraged, maybe even feeling defeated as they look across the circumstances in which we live. Some people will say, your church isn't this or it isn't that. Uh, your church is struggling or failing in many ways. And it's easy for the church people to resort to uh, feelings of panic and make desperate attempts to, quote, save the church. I must admit, I've battled those uh, desperate feelings at times in my uh, time as a pastor serving the church. There have been times where things appear to be going in a direction that's um, rather discouraging, and so we think we have to reach in and we have to pull it up and make it be something that we think that it should be. But I must remind us all that we need to resist such thinking. It is a good reminder to go back and rehearse the words that Jesus spoke with his disciples when he told them, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
Our responsibility is to preach God's great faithfulness to ourselves. What He purposes, what He plans, what He promises, He will always and absolutely accomplish. And He does this in spite of what we may see, feel, or think. I say this not to encourage indifference or apathy or even fatalism, but to remind ourselves that we can trust the Lord, we can look to Him and wait upon Him, even when those fleshly impulses may dictate otherwise in our feelings and thoughts and attitudes. The text that we're looking at this morning zooms out. It backs out from a close-up view to one that's more broad as it's showing us where we are headed in this journey through Genesis. The story is transitioning. No longer is Abraham the focus, but now we're going to begin to turn our attention to Jacob and the 12 tribes or the 12 sons that God will bring into being through him. The passage focuses here this morning on two sets of brothers. There is Isaac and Ishmael, and then we drill down as we follow the promised line from God to Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob. The word generations appears here, and it's something that's rather common uh, through Genesis, and it uh, is a title so to speak. It, it, in other words, it cues us or alerts us to exactly what I've just described, that there is something here taking place that's a transition. So while we've been down in the weeds with Abraham, we're going to pull back and take a broad look at what's going on, and then we'll resume zeroing in on Jacob in some time to come. So this morning, we're looking at the account of Ishmael and the account or the generations of Ishmael and the generations of Isaac. Now these two sons of Abraham placed side by side gives us an opportunity to uh, view their descendants and to also look at some of the contrasts that are apparent here. These, these contrasts are important, I think, for our understanding or God wouldn't have included it here. So let's begin, first of all, quickly, briefly, looking at the account of Abraham's son, Ishmael. And I emphasize that he is Abraham's son. But I take you back to Genesis chapter 16. We've made the pilgrimage through that. We've been out of Genesis for a few weeks. Let me just remind you of what has happened up to this point. In Genesis 16, we find that Abraham and Sarah developed an ill-conceived plot to help God. They didn't think God was capable or they didn't think it was going to happen fast enough to suit them that they were going to receive this son that he had promised and these, these uh, multitude of descendants. And so they began to panic. They began to work out a strategy that would help God accomplish his purpose. We can't provide a child, a natural heir. So Sarah said, take my handmaid, Hagar, and have a child with her, and that will be our child. She's, this, this child will be a part of our household. Now, we remember this resulted in great tension and conflict in the home. Sarah had regrets immediately and uh, began to treat Hagar harshly. The jealousy, the envy was overwhelming. She drove Hagar out of the house. 
Didn't want to see her face because it reminded her of too many negative things. And God intervened in that. You remember, he revealed his kindness and his merciful heart toward Hagar. He told her, he said, return and submit yourself to Sarah. And then he told her that he was going to multiply her offspring beyond any ability to calculate, much like he had promised Abraham with his descendant. So pardon us if we don't get a little bit confused and think, well, maybe God is going to use Ishmael to bring about the promise. He told her he was going to multiply her offspring beyond belief. And then in chapter 17, Abram was convinced that he and Sarah would not have children. And he pleaded with God at that point. Ishmael's already there. So he pleads with God, let the promise go through Ishmael. It's beyond hopeless for me and Sarah to conceive a child together. So please, Use Ishmael and bring the promise to fruition. But God refused. Why? Because it was a man-made attempt to complete God's action. It was an attempt to fix God's will, God's plan. And he reiterated the promise that the promised heir would come by Sarah, and his name would be Isaac. Verse 20 of chapter 17 Listen to what God says. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I've heard your concerns. Abraham had a concern for his son. He had a concern also for the reputation and the glory of God. I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Again, sounds a little bit like first promise that God gave to Abraham. Then I move you to Genesis 21 verses 12 and 13 and 17 and 18. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Again, reaffirming the promised line. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. And then he encounters Hagar again out. She's given up, ready to let Ishmael die. He says, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where, is, where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Now, why do I take you back and show you all of that? It's because as we come to verse 12 in this passage, we see what? We see God honoring his word. We see God fulfilling the promise that he made, even though this is not the promised line through which he's going to bring redemption to all people and bless all nations. What do we see here in these verses? Verses 12 through 18, we see the fulfillment of God's generous and kind promise to Hagar and again to Abraham. Ishmael becomes a father to 12 princes, equal in number, ironically, to the tribes of Israel. Do you find any irony in that? I do. And I, I don't know what the purpose is. I don't know that we know what the purpose is, but I'll tell you what my suspicion is, what I think 
is going on here. I think God is showing us that he didn't punish Hagar or her son because of uh, Sarah and Abraham's disobedience. In fact, he did not set Ishmael up to fail, but he set him up to prosper just like he did Isaac. So there's no complaint, there's no accusation that's worthwhile to go against God. God didn't uh, set him up just to unload his wrath upon him here in this world. He settled over against all his kinsmen, talking again about Ishmael. The New American Standard says he settled in defiance of all his relatives. That kind of caught my attention. I said, what does that mean exactly? Well, Genesis 16, 11 through 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar and said this, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. Because of the Lord, because the Lord has listened to your affliction, and listen to this, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. The New Living Translation says it this way. It says, this son of yours will be a wild one, free and untamed as a wild donkey. He will be against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live at odds with the rest of his brothers. Ishmael prospered as the father of 12 Arab nations. He did so by God's gracious and merciful and generous hand. We have a hard time, I think, getting our minds around the, the magnanimous greatness of our God. He didn't have to do this. He's showing us his great merciful heart in blessing Ishmael, who was dead set against him and against his people. And still is to this day, all of his descendants. And we look at the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. This text says he was 40 years old when he got married to Rebekah. You remember we talked about Eliezer going to find a wife for Isaac. And when he returned, they married after Rachel's death. Not Rachel, I'm sorry, after Sarah's death. And... Um, But this text says they were married for 20 years, and like Abraham and Sarah, they had no children. She was barren. Now, again, this is very similar to what we saw with Abraham and Sarah. The Lord does not see fit to tell us what went on during those 20 years. We don't know what Isaac was doing, what Isaac was thinking necessarily, or even Rebecca, for that matter. And I asked these questions of myself. Did he struggle like Abraham struggled with the promise? Did, did he and Rebecca contemplate at any time their own strategy for fulfilling God's plan as Abraham and Sarah had done? Did he question God's ways? You know, when, when Lord, how long? How long will it be? Did he doubt God's abilities and motives? Could he discern? Was it within his heart and mind to think that God was teaching him patience and shaping him in dependence upon his ways and his time? We don't have any indication other than what we do see he and Rebecca do. 
Could he see and trust God's providence? We don't know the answers. What we do know is that they did not repeat Abraham and Sarah's mistake. They didn't take matters into their own hands. They waited. They waited and they waited and they waited some more. Now, they didn't wait as long as Abraham and Sarah, but it wasn't far off. Abraham and Sarah waited how long? 25 years? 25 years they waited for Isaac. They waited 20 years, Isaac and Rebekah. We know that there are no Hagars in the picture. We do know that Isaac prayed for his wife. Isaac prayed for his wife. He prayed before her. He prayed with her. He prayed for her that God might honor this. Now, I don't know. Did, did Abraham teach him? Did Abraham caution him knowing what he knew? We can probably assume that there was some of that that went on, that he said the promise, God's promised line is coming through you. You are the one. Now, that's going to be require you to wait and to be patient for God to do these things. God doesn't, he doesn't find glory in people doing things for him in their own way and their own time, but he finds glory, he takes glory in us when we wait upon him and allow him to work through and in us according to his purpose and plans. So all we know about them is that they waited for God to act. What a powerful challenge for all of us who profess faith in Christ, isn't it? This is maybe one of the most uncomfortable things that we deal with day in and day out as believers in this broken world, right? We want God. We believe God's doing great things. We believe God's taking us in a great direction. We just want it now. We are immediate gratification people. We are fast food, microwave people. Let's get it on, get it done. And God is not bound by time. He's not, I'm not sure God's that interested in time. You may or may not be struggling with a form of barrenness in your life. Now, I'm not talking about physical barrenness in the way of uh, conceiving children, but maybe your career feels like it's hit a dead end. And you don't know where it's going. You feel like you don't have any purpose anymore. Maybe it's been years since you truly felt God stirring and moving and working in your heart and your life. And so there's some sort of barrenness there. Have you been left behind while it appears that others are forging ahead and prospering or achieving? Barrenness does not mean that God has abandoned you. It does not mean that you are not as well off as others. It does not necessarily mean even that you've been unfaithful to God. It can, but in many instances, it's not that. It may be that he is teaching and shaping you, as he did with Abraham and Sarah for those 25 years, forging you in this cauldron of patience so that you learn to depend upon him that you learn to wait to see his hand move and his hand work rather than trying to race ahead and fix everything for God. Listen, God is more interested in what is happening inside you than he is about what is happening around you. 
Can I say that again? God is more interested in what's happening and trans, transpiring in you than he is what's going on around you. He's more interested in what he's doing in you rather than what you may be doing for him. He's teaching you that he moves and works by grace and grace alone. He chose of his own, by his own desire, upon his own sovereign authority, to bring his promise to fruition through Isaac, not through Ishmael. He chose to do it in his own way, at his own time, so that no one else can boast. Now, it can and it did result in prideful boasting among the Jews, did it not? Those who descended from Isaac, they recognized that Isaac was the right son. And if you were a descendant, you could trace your roots back to Isaac. You took a great deal of pride in that. We saw those people confronting Jesus during his ministry, right? Ishmael was the illegitimate son through Hagar. But there's more to this promise than physical lineage or DNA. The second pair of brothers give us further clarity regarding God's promise. So we think about Jacob and Esau. You read in Romans chapter 9 earlier with Nathan. Paul using that in his instruction to the believers in Rome. And we're going to go there and think a little bit about that as well. After 20 years, Isaac and Rebekah conceived. And they had not one child, not one son, but two. Now think about this. Before we had Ishmael who had the right father, but he had the wrong mother. Here we have two, two boys with the right mother and the right father. And yet the line, the promise of God's blessing is not coming through both of them. And it's not even coming through the one we would expect it to come through text says that these children struggled together within Rebekah. And so she inquired of the Lord as to what was going on inside her. And God said, there are two nations. There are two peoples in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Two boys from the same father and mother at the same time. The elder son grew up strong and skillful, a man's man. The younger was a quiet man, bent more toward domestic issues. The elder was the heir apparent, entitled to a double portion of the estate, entitled by the customs of the day to assume the role of family patriarch. He was the natural choice. He was his father's choice. But, he was not God's choice. Jacob was not physically imposing or impressive. He was not entitled to anything by customs or natural order, but he was God's choice. And God set his love upon him and grace upon him. Now, not because Jacob deserved it. Jacob was a broken vessel just like Esau. They were equal in every way in this sense. It's God's sovereign right to choose whom he will and to reject whom he will. As you read in Romans chapter 9, prior to Romans chapter 9, Romans 8, 
28 through 39, we see uh, God's promises. We're taught there by Paul that God's promises are not thwarted. Nothing can separate believers from God. And this led to people questioning because they were looking around at the Hebrews, at the Jews, and saying, well, they're not following this. They're, they're not in God's will or pursuing this line of blessing. They're doing things in and of themselves. So it made them question, has God's word failed? Has God's promise failed? Has this all broken down? And Paul argues that the promises were not made to mere physical Israel. They were made to a spiritual Israel. They were made to those whom God chooses, whom God elects. Some will be chosen from physical Israel. Some will be chosen from the Gentiles. Listen again, Romans 9, 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, he writes. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So God chose Abraham apart from any merit, called him out from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. And the Jewish argument would go something like this. Okay, we are not called out as Abraham, but we are descendants of Abraham, direct descendants of Abraham. Therefore, we receive the benefit of God choosing Abraham by being his descendants. But the response from Paul would be, no, it does not apply to Ishmael or the sons of Keturah. So just because you're a son, a physical son of Abraham, this does not mean it's true that you are now a child of promise. And the Jewish argument again would be, we are pure Jews through Isaac by Rebekah, not Hagar and not Keturah. And Paul's argument, well, let's take it a step further. Let's look at Jacob and Esau. From the same father and the same mother, and yet God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. Romans 9, 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Donald Barnhouse said this about this particular text. He said, the text flatly states that the choice of God was not dependent on their birth or their character. The choice was in the heart of God and based solely on his sovereign authority. He decided that Jacob would be the child who was to carry the line of Messiah and to be the heir to blessing. And in the same way, he determined that Esau was not to carry the line nor inherit the blessing. This was God's divine purpose. The works and characters of the individuals had nothing to do with the choice. Grace is all him plus nothing. Grace plus anything equals nothing. Grace plus nothing is indeed everything. Isaac and Jacob were children of Abraham, but that did not entitle them to God's favor just because they were his children. 
They were in the promised land by God's grace, by His choice and His choice only. This creates much controversy and animosity among people. Right? We are control freaks. We resist and we push back against some idea that we are not capable or able to decide this all alone and for ourselves. We simply struggle to think that redemption is not our choice alone. And after all, where does human responsibility fit in? There is human responsibility. I'm not denying that. But it's a mystery. It's a mystery how we can be dead, incapable of any action or thought in and of ourselves, and yet God brings salvation to bear and that there's some responsibility in us. I don't know that we'll understand it fully until we are in His presence and fully capable to understand it. It's a mystery. But God initiates, God equips God empowers, empowers us that we might respond to His grace, that we might repent of our sin and turn to Him. Understanding and accepting this doctrine that it originates, initiated by God and in God and not in ourselves is crucial. It's beneficial. It's important. Why? Well, getting our hearts and minds around this truth eliminates boasting. It eliminates boasting. It eliminates thinking that I did this. I got my life together. I got my path straightened out. I came to realize I was on the wrong trajectory and I took the initiative to do this. It's quite humbling to realize and own my own absolute hopelessness. It's fuel for true worship. When you embrace this doctrine, it enables you to worship God unlike you've been able to do before. See, if you think you should get some of the credit, your worship is a little bit divided, fragmented. You want some of that glory. You know, we become glory stealers. We, we have that nature of Satan that's pulling us to want and aspire for that glory. Not only does it eliminate boasting, but it encourages genuine love for God. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because why? Because He first loved us. Not because we had any love within us, but because He has put His love, set His love upon us, and we are capable and able to love Him now. If we have part in our salvation, we're prone to love ourselves mostly. It also challenges and encourages us in evangelism. The claim is that the opposite occurs, that it causes pacifism toward evangelism. If God's going to save certain people, why do I need to do anything? Well, actually, it should stir us to go forth with great boldness and expectation, knowing that God's got this. So I go forth out of obedience to Him, out of worship and honor to Him, because He is sharing the privilege with me, and I can go forth with great confidence knowing that God is going to save some. Not everyone, but He's going to save some, and I don't know who those are. But I can go forth with great assurance that I am fulfilling His plans, and it doesn't rest upon me to make it happen, to force it to happen, or to keep it happening.
We go forth in a healthy way with the gospel. So these sons of Isaac show us a contrast in attitude, and the birthright story brings this to light, does it not? Both of these sons of Isaac were scoundrels. (laughs) I told you they were both broken, right? I'm sorry, but they're both scoundrels at heart. Esau was worldly, he was prideful, he was defiant, and he was impulsive. Jacob was conniving, he's deceitful, he's greedy, and he's self-serving. But there's a key difference in them. A key difference, and I think it's an important difference. We don't really have a category in our lives today for this birthright issue. I know uh, firstborn is always kind of given a little bit more of a status, but we tend to do just the opposite. We want, our children, we want to treat our children equal, don't we? We want to do just the same for all of them, that we're not showing favoritism to any. It was just the opposite here. The birthright meant that this one, this one was the one who had set upon him the future of the family, the responsibilities for the family. So he got a double portion of the inheritance. He got the... Uh, uh, the essentially the position of being patriarch and caring for the family spiritually, physically, all of those kind of things. The story of Esau coming in from hunting while famished illustrates a great contrast here. What we see is that Jacob, who was not the firstborn, actually respected the birthright and desired it. He had a desire for it. Esau was indifferent, really. He, he only saw it as a means to an end for himself. And at this particular moment, he, went, he opted to go with immediate fleshly gratification rather than the spiritual significance of the birthright. Now, I will tell you this. Jacob didn't go about getting the birthright the right way. He went about it the wrong way. Thus, we have he's a scoundrel, okay? He's a deceiver. He's, he's self-serving. But the desire was the right desire. He wanted the birthright. He wanted to be a part of that messianic line, right? Through which the blessing of God was going to come. Esau, he didn't care. It was just a bargaining chip for him. Jacob, good desire, went about it badly. Esau, foolish desire, and resented what was before him. I think there's a lot of application here for us. We live in a paradise, an abundant uh, world, filled with abundance. Uh, We have comforts, pleasures. They're so easily attained here. And beyond the material blessings, think about here in the nation we live in, the spiritual advantages and opportunities we have. Think about the spiritual birthright that you have in this nation. We go back more than 200 years. We've operated on Christian principles. We've had freedoms to worship God. It's been a point of great emphasis Only now, at this juncture in our history, have we begun to feel society closing in and pushing back against that. We have churches in mass. We have the gospel going out over media in abundance. You'd be hard to find, go through your radio dial on the way home, and not find the gospel being proclaimed on several stations. Tomorrow, being a Monday, you'll still find it coming out across the waves. The gospel goes forth in great measure across our nation the airwaves. We also have God's Word available. I can't, I'm embarrassed to tell you how many copies of the Bible I have. I have them in all kinds of translations. I have them in every location where I'm at. You know, we have Bibles and we have bukus of Bibles, right? 
We have the Word of God, an abundance of God's Word available in every translation and format imaginable. We have podcasts and digital sermon files and digital books. We have highly trained and educated teachers of God's Word readily available to us on the Internet constantly. What a birthright for those of us who live in this time and this place. Spiritual advantages that dwarf other places and times. So what are we doing with them? Are we prizing them? Do we utilize it to conform ourselves to Christ's image? Are we squandering it? Do we despise them as Esau did? When we despise the birthright, the spiritual birthright before us, we also despise important blessings like the benefits of Jesus' death and redemption. We despise the benefits of God's written word, starving ourselves spiritually, trying to do things in the flesh. The preaching of the gospel, we deny ourselves this, which is so critically important to us. And the ministry of healthy churches abounds. There may be plenty of unhealthy churches, but there's also Plenty of healthy churches teaching and preaching God's word and giving us hope in him for all of eternity. We have discretionary time like no other generation before us. I mean, you go back just a short time ago, a generation or two prior to ours when people had to work from daylight until dark and then go to bed because they were just trying to eke out a living and there's still some places in the world where that's taking place. But we have all these advantages that enable us to have plenty of time. We use it on entertainment or recreation or whatever it may be. But we have these advantages. This is part of our birthright. Esau despised his advantage, his birthright, and he forfeited it for a bowl of stew. I would ask you this morning, are you neglecting or forfeiting your advantages, and for what? It's in Christ that we have great hope. It's in Christ that we have incredible privilege. It's in the church that we not only survive, but thrive with Christ and for Christ. It does not matter what we see or feel or think in the culture around us. We can trust God to do what He has planned and purposed to do. We can live in assurance that victory is ours even day by day when it looks like defeat is swallowing us up because he tells us the victory is ours. Just as we look at the line of Isaac and we know all the troubles the children of Israel are going to face and yet we know how the story ends, right? The promise is successful. The promise thrives, and it's continuing to thrive. The question is, is it thriving in our lives? Are we learning to trust and wait upon Him and do only as He directs? Only as He directs. I pray that be true for you in the daily of your lives. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for who you are and for what you do in us. And for the gospel that is so rich and so uh, powerful and so full of blessing, I pray that, Lord, even though we live in a blessed time, the culture around us affords us many opportunities and blessings, but 
those can be distractions if we're not careful. I pray that, Lord, we would not neglect nor despise our birthright, our heritage, all these things that you have afforded to us to keep us, Lord, focused upon you for your honor, for your glory, and for our continued blessing in and for you. Make us a church, Lord, that thrives in this regard. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.